welcome to Fandom Media. And Ash, Sean, and Aziz back for the first half of Better Call Saul Season 3. This is Episode 5 called Chicanery, and there's no reason to waste any time. The season's been great. Let's talk about this episode and how it culminates a lot of these first half plots, but only... On the Jimmy and Chuck side, we have no appearance whatsoever from Gus or Mike or any of the cartel stuff. Let's go. Meta elements. So we get the character Chuck saying the title of this episode, Chicanery. It's a sort of uh, specific type of trickery, something that's used in an official capacity, something legal or financial like we have here in this hearing of lawyers. Like as he said, there's no cartel plotline this week, but Jimmy interacts in a minor way with that side of things when he goes to see Dr. Caldera, the veterinarian, and we get the return of Huel Babineau from Breaking Bad, of course. This character is played by Lavelle Crawford, who actually has lost over 100 pounds, you might have noticed, or maybe he's going to gain over 100 pounds. Your pick. I think I'm going to gain over 100 pounds. <laughs> I better not lose over 100 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be two-dimensional. <laughs> we also had the return of Rebecca, that is Chuck's ex-wife, who's played by Ann Cusack, which you might not have guessed given her name, but she's sister to John Cusack and Joan Cusack. Right on. Big surprise. Happy surprise. So a neat little behind the stories bit here. There's a sort of pervasive reference to the movie The K-Mutiny, this whole episode. It was a 1950s movie about a ship, I think, in World War II. It starred Humphrey Bogart, where the captain is kind of losing his mind, and the crew kind of has to take over, but then they end up getting tried for mutiny. And apparently the director of this movie was an instructor of Peter Gould, one of the creators of this show. So... Clearly, there is some influence. I think it's pretty clear anyway, but his particular connection to this guy makes it even more clear. And apparently, there's even a scene in Breaking Bad where Mike is watching TV, and on the TV is the K-Mutiny. So, <laughs> clearly, this must have been something seeded in him, you know, something he wanted to draw on and represent in this story. We also had something we've had referenced a few other times, Perry Mason. Back in previous seasons, we had Jimmy actually emulating him in his Sandpiper Crossing ads with his outfit and everything like that, and Chuck brings it up here. You expect this to be just like a confession from a murder on Perry Mason? And it, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something about this episode that's kind of interesting to me. Generally speaking, courtroom dramas aren't particularly realistic on TV. Usually when you go to court, everything that happens, everyone knows what's going to happen. Both sides submit all their evidence to each other. Both sides have all the testimonies. There aren't usually these surprise bombshells that happen. It's usually all kind of planned out. They're going through the motions for the sake of the jury, you know? Although this isn't quite a normal court case, and even still, it seems like, given the competence of the lawyers involved here, it's unlikely for some surprise bombshell to happen like it did. But I feel it's justified for a couple reasons. One... They kind of reference it themselves, you know, recognizing this isn't some Perry Mason courtroom drama. No one's going to yeah. get me. <laughs> and also just the nature of this character, Chuck, just he has kind of lost his mind, is kind of arrogant, doesn't see this coming. I think, And they've spent episodes and episodes building up to this courtroom case, not just the beginning half of the episode, then suddenly this bomb comes. This is like hours and hours of television in the making here. And like you mentioned, this is a little different. It's a little more lenient. It's a little more likely that they wouldn't share all of their evidence in this casual case. And also, Howard kind of does see this coming. Howard tries to stop it. You know, Howard isn't necessarily surprised by this as much as Chuck and maybe the, the panel is. We had another reference from Chuck to Ted Kaczynski. That is the Unabomber. He says, 
Did Ted Kaczynski's brother love him too? And this kind of might seem like it comes just out of the blue and is totally random that he would compare Jimmy to the Unabomber, which is pretty crazy, but there's an interesting similarity here. The Unabomber was caught due to his brother recognizing the style of his writing when he wrote this manifesto back in 1995 and it was published in newspapers. His brother noted that and got him caught. His own brother? Yeah, his own brother. <laughs> That's pretty brutal to... You know, later, especially in the episode, as Jimmy is going to make his point that Chuck hates him. Here we have Chuck comparing Jimmy to the Unabomber. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. This episode had a director that we're pretty familiar with, Daniel Sackheim, who's directed a bunch of episodes of Game of Thrones, The Leftovers, The X-Files, and a particularly high number of episodes of The Americans, which is a show that we are actively watching. It's airing right now. I really like the name Sackheim. Daniel <laughs> Sackheim. It's a good one. Sakim. Narrative. The episode begins with Chuck setting up his house, basically what appears to be the first time after realizing or diagnosing himself or whatever you want to call it. He's basically retrofitting his house for no electricity and he's also importantly preparing to lie to Rebecca and we have kind of an ironic moment where Jimmy is telling him not to lie because he's going to get himself dug into deep yeah and if anyone knows about getting dug into deep with the lie it's Jimmy but of course <laughs> Chuck no, Chuck doesn't listen to Jimmy, even on the thing he's the most expert on. <laughs> Chuck's lie has a bit of a delicious irony here in that he brings up how the electric company transposed the numbers on the address, and that's why he has no power. Which, if you'll obviously remember, is what happened with the Mesa Verde files. Yeah, of course, Jimmy is in on this lie. He asks, what's up with the candles? And that allows Chuck to go into the explanation of the electric company and, of course, he also conveniently leaves the room to do the dishes to allow them to have some time alone. And he just sits there and kind of listens at the door. One thing this scene does, it does many things, but one thing it does is remind us how far out of his way Jimmy goes for Chuck. How much Jimmy tries to help his brother out, you know? Yeah, it also gives us a time frame because Rebecca exclaims that she can't believe Jimmy is a lawyer now. So it's roughly around the same time where he's probably just become a lawyer. There was another little time framing hint that we got Howard says under oath that he's known Jimmy for about 10 years. And so I, I got to assume it took him at least a couple years to be earning his law degree while he knew Howard. Or maybe Howard didn't even know him on day one at the mailroom or whatever. But it still gives us some sort of a time frame there. We're reminded that Rebecca is a concert violinist. And that causes her to travel quite a lot. And she's hopefully in her mind, hopefully going to be able to stay in one place for a while. But this is quite a contrast to Chuck, and that's part of the point of all that, is that he's holed up, and she's out traveling the world, and maybe it's meant to sort of suggest how they diverged in life as well. You know, they clearly are on solid enough terms until he, he smacks the phone out of her hand. But, <laughs> <laughs> but before, you know, but they're clearly pleasant. You know, they set up a time to hang out. You know, they're he, like he says later in the hearing that they're on good terms, and, you know, they roughly were. I appreciated that this episode gave us a little more insight into Rebecca as a person. It was just one line, but it really stood out to me to say a lot about her. When she's talking about getting like a stateside uh, residency and she says, oh, that would be sweet. Just the <laughs> fact that she used the term sweet there just <laughs> said a lot to me. It made me think about how she laughed at Jimmy's joke in the episode Rebecca. It made me think about how later Kim says she's not what she expected and she isn't exactly what you expect Chuck to be with she's maybe a little more a little liberal cooler, and yeah. fun and cool than uh the conservative stern chuck 
Of course, the dramatic moment comes when her phone rings, and of course, this is a big problem for Chuck. He hasn't had to deal with this problem a whole lot yet because his condition is relatively new, and she, of course, is unaware, and they really just make it really awkward with her pacing back and forth, and he's <laughs> trying to get away, and he just can't, and, and Jimmy's trying to get her attention, and she just waves him off repeatedly, like, oh, just hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And, of course, it just culminates with him doing what he has to do. He smacks the phone out of her hand, and, of course, that's really awkward. It was incredibly bad manners to answer your phone as I smack your phone out of your hand. I may have been abrupt. <laughs> so as this scene, you know, heats up, again, we see Jimmy trying to save his brother, trying to look out for his brother. And he's like, look, just tell her, you know, just come clean. Hell, you know, right now she thinks you're a jerk. You just knocked the phone out of her hand. It, you know, however bad you think it'll be for her to know about this condition you have, it's probably not worse than what you just did. And Chuck just insists you will not tell her. He doesn't want her to know. He can't. Pity's worse than, you know, empathy? I don't know. Well, there's that. Uh, you know, I didn't even think of that. That's a good point. But I still think it's more that he kind of knows in his heart that this isn't like, oh, I'm allergic to peanuts. This is psychological. There's something psychological wrong with him and he's embarrassed by it. And of course, later, it, Jimmy even links it to her leaving him. And if that's true, which it very well could be, that would be why he doesn't want to address it with her specifically. Yeah, I spent a lot of time wondering what was cause and effect. Was this disorder coming on and that was driving his wife away or as she was driven away was the disorder coming on or was some other thing causing both uh, they didn't quite give us an answer to that i kind of hope and expect to learn a little bit more about it but it's very intriguing regardless jimmy implied that it happened after she left him and not after for instance he got his legal degree right that that did seem to be an implication but i still wonder if leading up to it maybe he had other psychosomatic things he was becoming obsessive compulsive or short-tempered other things that hadn't turned into this full-blown allergy to electricity but hints of some sort of disorder so we have this scene with jimmy going to the vet he brings a goldfish that he just bought that day just to go there and dr caldera is you know he's not a bad guy he cares about animals and he you know complains to him about how he's treating this goldfish and i mean it's the most minor of all the animals the goldfish <laughs> you, you how many times have you been to a fair and seen goldfish just in bags and the kids just accidentally kill them within a day and they are a living creature though and this guy cares about it and jimmy calls him jacques cousteau after the famous you know he was a conservationist mm -hmm. so makes sense i like that moment because it did kind of bring a little something a little give a little character to this guy that we're seeing every now and then he even asked about mike's dog when he got him the dog he followed up he was like the dog's okay right the dog's happy yeah. playing with people he seems generally concerned about animals of course, this connection is made through Jimmy's friendship with Mike, and obviously Mike has set this meeting up, and of course what Jimmy is looking for, we have a bit of humorous foreshadowing. Do you need him to fit in a tight space? And at the time, you know, if you're if you're on your game, you realize he's talking about Huel because we know that Huel is good at this sort of thing. But and... not good at fitting into tight spaces. Right. So <laughs> it's a great setup. I suppose if you're good enough to pick pocket someone, you're good enough to plant pocket someone. Well, on the second watch, you notice that Huel lets go of his newspaper and Chuck has to catch has his to newspaper it, and hand yeah. it back. And that's the moment where Huel makes his move. Yeah, I'm really happy that we are seeing Huel finally. And we knew we would see him at some point, And I don't know how featured he will be until Jimmy actually needs to hire a personal bodyguard, which probably won't be super soon. But I think he was a really funny character in Breaking Bad. I mean, obviously, the scene with him laying on the money is just an iconic <laughs> moment and something that <laughs> I would do too if I could. It sounds <laughs> awesome. But anyways, enough about Huel, who is cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
fandommedia.reviews. Most of the episode is in the courtroom, but we have a few scenes that are taking place elsewhere, and one of them is Kim going to meet with Mesa Verde. And let me just say that I had seen a sneak peek of this scene, you know, in the days leading up to the episode, and it cuts off with Kim saying that they could discuss options, and you don't get to see what Mesa Verde's reaction is. And for days, I was stressed out. I was thinking about what could happen. <laughs> I was worried about this case, and it just made me realize how invested I am in this client in this I don't know why I care so much but I'm very very invested in it yeah it was a bit of a relief wasn't it it was pretty baroque (laughs) (laughs) even not having seen the clip ahead of time they still sort of slow rolled the reaction there was like this two second pause before the guy kind of gave his affirmation during the case itself there was a little Kim moment that I took note of that I thought was interesting when she stands up and buttons her blazer Hamlin does that a lot Howard Hamlin does that (laughs) often it's a very, it's like an authority thing. Yeah, I think she was inspired by him. I think it's a power move to do that a little bit. Yeah, everyone has to wait for you, and it's yeah. really just superficial thing to do. It gives you a moment to get yourself ready to go yeah. over your first thought to consider what's up ahead of you. And speaking of stalling, that's a very, very <laughs> minor stall, but really they were stalling because they were needing extra time for Rebecca to get there. I love it when she asks, what are we doing? We're stalling. She just nods. Like, yeah. okay. okay. She's, she's used to this kind of game nowadays. Yeah, having that flight delayed added so much extra stress and drama for both the characters and the audience. For me, I was really worried that Rebecca's just not going to show up. The whole plan's going to fail because of a flight. <laughs> Prior to the main hearing, Chuck and Howard come in before, kind of scout it out and, you know, make sure it's okay for Chuck in terms of the electricity in particular. But they also discuss what's going to happen. And Howard expresses his concern about the firm's reputation and how that's a priority. And Chuck, as he is wont to do, puts his high-minded ethics first and says, no, the right thing here is to go after my brother and make sure he's disbarred. Like, this is something that he thinks is really important that they have to uphold. It's really quite over the top. Even if it meant the downfall of your firm. Yeah, Yeah, like he's like, no, this is clearly the right thing that we need to do here. Normally, Chuck is so good about the firm's bottom line. He's clearly, so clearly, this is personal. It's so obvious. Howard expresses concerns, too. He's like, you know, you don't have to take the stand. He's like, oh, I do. Only I. Only I can properly set the context of this tape. Doesn't consider that maybe Jimmy could also set the context of this tape. And in fact, that is a decision that comes back to haunt him because they pivot to Jimmy talking to him rather than Kim. And that's important because Chuck is extremely cordial and professional with everyone and very polite. But when Jimmy starts talking to him, you see the arrogance and the scorn. And it's really plays right into their hands because their whole goal is to prove that Chuck hates Jimmy. And that's a brilliant way of getting that sense by just having them interact constantly where he's constantly arrogant and scornful and talking down to him. And that happens all despite Chuck practicing and practicing and practicing all the ways that he could say this and realizing that he sounds sanctimonious or that he sounds too harsh or any of these things. And he still just falls right into his trap. He even explains what's happening. He says, oh, he's brought Rebecca here to rattle me. And then it rattles him (laughs) yeah 
in the pre-hearing scouting scene, this is all foreshadowed when Chuck basically says, let justice be done though the heavens fall, which is basically like saying, you know, everything is worth it. He's, he's willing to risk everything. Damn for the consequences. This. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then cut his nose off to spite his face. And indeed, that's what happens. He does end up, you know, crashing and burning. So in the case itself, there's multiple steps in this process. One of the first tacks that Kim and Jimmy take is pointing out the nepotism that is already in Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill <laughs> that Chuck claims is why he wouldn't hire him, which was a hilarious scene. It's a key pillar to the argument here is proving that Chuck hates Jimmy, and there's no better way than showing like really distinct hypocrisy here. It's like, this firm, in its name, has nepotism, <laughs> and you're not gonna bring up Jimmy, who you just admitted works really hard, who they said bootstrapped his way into a law degree without anyone knowing about it while working in your mailroom. And he gives him the name Charlie Hustle, even. I mean, this is just, how can they justify this? The the board is probably, like, really won over by that, I would think. Yeah, it's his key to this is the nepotism hypocrisy is the fact that Howard respects Jimmy. Not just that Chuck doesn't, but that Howard does. And the implication that Howard would have hired Jimmy. It was yeah. only Chuck that didn't want to. Yeah. When the tape itself is played, you know, there's that part where he even talks about Howard in there. And it made me think a little bit more about when Howard had the tape played for him and he heard, I did it for Kim. You guys are like Scrooge and Marley chortling <laughs> over your scotch or whatever he says. And poor Howard, I felt bad for him. He's just in a weird compromised position here. He isn't that bad. He isn't Marley. Yeah. Howard is in a tough spot. During this scene, you get to see the reactions on everyone's faces as they listen. And Howard was gone because he had to go pick up Chuck. Chuck couldn't be there when the tape was played because it would set off his sensitivity. But you see Francesca's reaction. You see the chair people, everyone's reactions. And I just wish more people could have heard this awful interaction that they had right there. And Kim as well. That was a really big one. Like her reaction. Oh, right. It was, it was, almost, it was easy to forget that she hasn't heard this tape yet. Exactly. And to hear how he defended her the way he screamed I did it for Kim you know that that had to mean a lot to her yeah I think it probably did move her I think it probably also might have made her a little more concerned about everything it may have also justified how much help she's giving him here like <laughs> that it shows that he is devoted to her and that's part of why she's devoted to him and helping him so much is this reciprocation but one of the tacks that Jimmy is playing here is that he's just saying what he wants Chuck to hear that will make him feel better. And the line, but you feel better, right, is in fact crucial to their case. And Chuck just emphasizes this. He just underlines how this is possible when he himself says that what you heard was theater, play acting. Exactly what Jimmy's doing. And then he actually does theater slash play acting right there with the whole trick with the battery and everything. And this is really well orchestrated because he acts like he's been beaten. He acts, he strings Chuck along. Chuck thinks he's gotten the best of him. He's like, oh, do you have something in your pocket, Jimmy? He thinks he's outsmarted Jimmy multiple times, and then Jimmy concedes that, yes, that's what's happened. You've outsmarted me. Aha, no, I've outsmarted you, and that's really when Chuck loses it. It was all beautifully orchestrated by the characters, which means written by the creators of the show. Yeah. It seemed like Jimmy and Kim were so averse to this tape. Like, they bring it up, you know, in the prior episode. They want to rest before it's played. It seems like it, they know it's like their downfall, but the reality is they're not worried about it. They're not trying to prove it's fake. They're admitting it's real, just 
what Jimmy said isn't true. And it seems like Chuck just doesn't quite see this angle, you know? And like you said, just played right into their hands. Watching it a second time especially, you just see how much Chuck is burying himself. <laughs> Almost every line out of his mouth is just making it worse and worse. Just like when Jimmy said in the very beginning, the bigger the lie, the harder to dig out of it. Chuck cannot dig out of this. <laughs> I think one of my favorite lines that I think buried him is when he says, ever since he was nine. A nine-year-old yeah. is this awful person. You thought this ever since he was a child? Yeah. Really? You... <laughs> yeah, this was about as bad as admitting he was comparing him to the Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> During the rant, the camera's entirely focused on him, and it stays that way for quite a while until it backs out and shows the panel's faces, and that's when Chuck realizes, oh, I've gone too far. Yeah, there's this slow, slow zoom in on Chuck, and then a slow zoom out, back out on him, the quick cut over to the looks on everyone's faces, and then it just ends with this slow moment with the pan up to the, like, hissing and humming of the red exit sign, and it was just really well done, and I, yeah, it was an amazing scene. Yeah, it reminded me of a lot of uh, Louis C.K.'s material. A lot of times he creates these moments that are so sad and so funny at the exact same time. It's so humorous the timing of this cut from his intensity and frustration to the realization oh you know everyone's looking at me (laughs) (laughs) and then you know there's this moment of humor but then this sinking feeling that he's just kind of ruined his life and damaged his firm and and there's this extra sort of frustration or sadness because chuck is kind of right when it comes down to it he He really was duped. Jimmy really did switch the things. There there is this truth to this, but now Chuck, no way he can prove it. It almost doesn't matter if he can prove it. And maybe even in his own mind is questioning his own sanity, which he should, I suppose. But yeah, it was a very moving scene. It was very, very well built up. And he may have proved subconsciously to Chuck, admitting to himself on some level that Jimmy's right about his main point that he's making to the committee here, which is that he hates Jimmy. This yeah. is sort of, maybe he's starting to realize that Jimmy's right. That maybe, hey, maybe I do hate my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he'll realize it or not. I'm, yeah, I'm that's curious. why I'm saying it's subconscious because I don't think he actively yeah. realizes that. But that would explain partly why he lost it. You yeah. know? He might not ever realize that he has hated his brother, but I think he'll realize that he now hates his brother at some <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Visual elements. As a counterpoint to the warm yellow tone we saw in the flashback for cartel scenes, we get a cool blue for the Chuck's flashback. It was the raddest. (laughs) (laughs) And there's also an interesting technique they use when Chuck is experiencing his pain for the first time where the camera like flashes and he's sort of out of sorts and sort of expressing what's going on in his head. I like that also. There was good camera work, filmmaking in general, both in the flashback scene and in a courtroom scene. The way the uh, camera moves in on him and it's kind of from above. I want to give credit all around for the lighting, the editing, the performance. Everything about it really made it feel out of sort, added this sort of tensity as you're watching it. One shot that I don't think had any great significance I just thought was cool and I'm sure they just thought it was cool was just them filming the reflection of the chair people in the clock right there I just liked that before they took it down off the wall yeah exactly they like to do a lot of that reflection filming I think so on to our color theory section Chuck of course keeps it with the cool tones lots of blues but a particular amount of gray in this episode for sure from like a checkered gray tie which I I like that it was checkered in particular and to like a bluish gray when they go to check out the hearing room originally the courtroom itself is in warm colors it's red and yellow and Huel is in a red shirt with blue spots so he's got a contrast going on there both extremes back in the flashback 
Chalk is in blue. I had even mentioned out loud, I wish that this was one of the few times he was in red or yellow, that he was a little more on the edge right there. And then he's wearing a yellow apron when he's cooking. So I like that he has a yellow apron. Maybe not doing anything illegal, but still something deceitful. Kim's in a blue shirt. For the most part, all the characters we've been seeing in blue keep being in blue. Jimmy, though, has his red tie on. He's definitely, again, maybe within the law here, but we know he is lying and he is... using all sorts of uh, chicanery to get there, right? (laughs) Hamlin, though, is in blue for the hearing, but when they're checking it out, he's in a purple tie. And I don't know what I think that signifies exactly, but I liked it. I think it was because he confronted Chuck about Mm. the importance of maintaining the firm's image over following the law. And it was basically the moral upholding of the law versus the firm in that case. So Chuck was the blue upholding the law and Mm. Howard was the purple kind of looking out for the bottom line of the company. I think that's right, yeah. Still a cool color, but not straight blue like Howard normally is. Purple's the coolest. (laughs) (laughs) And they really made sure we saw that purple tie. He just kind of thrust his chest out like Superman as he walked forward (laughs) to check out the... Yeah, yeah, like a pea. A P. Howard. Also notable is that that Mr. Alley, which is the person representing the state bar, was wearing a yellow and blue striped tie. And he was definitely not so much on Chuck's side of this. He seemed a little unnerved by his craziness, honestly. Yeah, I don't think he was biased. He was doing his job without doing anything dirty, which I think maybe is something that Jimmy and Kim counted on. That <laughs> they could do the dirty stuff because they knew that the other side would play it straight. Yeah, his role here would have been to, I don't know, say this go after jimmy is too aggressive but like his position in this case this is the bar versus mcgill you know he's trying to demonstrate that jimmy should lose his license that's what he's trying to do he's not necessarily there to defend chuck or to prove jimmy's a bad person he's just saying look this guy broke into someone's house lawyers can't do that you know right and that's that was howard's point earlier is like look this guy's not after our best interests either we're trying to protect our reputation and this state bar guy doesn't care about that so when rebecca shows up She's neutral at first. She has a a brown beige jacket on. But as we see her in the audience, she has a blue top. And I kind of interpret that to be that at first when she shows up, she doesn't know what's going on. But when she meets with Chuck and gets a feel for all this, she's on his side. She's on the good guy's side, if you will. She's in blue. You know, she's not doing anything tricky or mean. She has a positive representation here. Audio Elements. A neat parallel, we've mentioned a couple times the the camera work and the filmmaking when Chuck is kind of becoming unhinged with the phone call at the beginning and the case at the end. I thought it was neat in the beginning scene, there was this music that starts when the phone first comes and she's talking. It starts kind of slow and eerie and builds and gets louder and more intense as Chuck is just losing control. But at the end, there's no music. It's dead silence. That, That room is quiet except for Chuck's rant. And I think that maybe added to his craziness coming out, you know. And again, the film work and his performance do plenty to make it intense, but I think it was neat how it was further amplified by the lack of music. And then, at the end of his rant, by the buzz of the electricity of the signs. Yeah, you're right. The lack of music, I totally agree, was very noteworthy, and they really let the dialogue and the emotions that they had set up through the previous episodes of the season and prior seasons, too, just 
let it speak for themselves and it didn't need any backing. I think the most featured audio element of the episode was just the sounds of the electronics humming or hissing or buzzing or whatever sounds they were making and they really they've done this before in the show I think that it really makes you feel stressed out it makes you feel like this is dangerous you feel the danger of the electricity coming closer to him even though I do think that it's <sighs> psychosomatic diseases they clearly have an effect on him but it still is mostly BS. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have so much sympathy for Chuck's specific illness as much as I feel like I should understand it. I think that mental illnesses are real and he has a mental illness, but I think it's that he isn't owning up to it. I think it's that he doesn't call it what it is. And Jimmy just proved to the the whole board there that he was taking care of Chuck this whole time knowing it was BS. Yeah. But he still took care of his brother, even though he knew this. It's worth noting a lot of times when someone's losing their mind, they don't own up to it. Usually if you have the wherewithal to own up to it, that's an indication that maybe you're not completely crazy. But Chuck is denying it, whether because he doesn't understand it or believe it or he's really crazy one way or the other. It does make it harder to empathize with him. Additionally, though, even if it's quote unquote not real, you know, even if it's like scientifically there aren't electromagnetic currents causing him pain, it doesn't mean it's not real to him. It doesn't mean that he doesn't really feel this anxiety and this pain, even if it's I don't know how to say this faked or a show or a trick or whatever it is. It doesn't mean he doesn't feel it. But the fact that that battery is in his pocket the whole time means it isn't real. You know, when he becomes aware of it, he may legitimately feel real pain, even if it's not caused by electricity, even if it's his own mind tricks. But it does mean, and that was the whole point of what Jim is trying to do here, is that he is mentally ill. And that's what they were trying to avoid in this case. This isn't about Chuck's mental state, right? Oh, no, of course not. Yeah, let's just talk about the tape. Da, da, da. Oh, no, it's not about his mental illness. You know, constantly the... Did the, I mention I'm his guardian? Yeah, right. Constantly the prosecutor had to remind everyone this isn't about Chuck's mental state. And Jimmy would like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's not what this is about. But that is what it was about and Jim was able to prove it. And building off of that, we have the sound of the phone being on, Rebecca's phone being on, and it was a lot like the drill scene with Mike, except that instead of being comedic like that scene was, this was really intense and awkward and stressful. It was a little comedic. (laughs) (laughs) I think it says a little bit about Mm, the point of view that they're giving us, right? That scene with Mike was a little bit more from Mike's point of view, so we see Mike run the drill and Chuck in a distance, you know, avoiding it running away. Then we see this scene from Chuck's point of view and a phone rings and we see Chuck, we hear all the noise and the sort of exaggerated effects that affect Chuck. Yeah, if we had seen Chuck's experience of the handyman visit it would have been like he hears it and like the room reels for a moment we would have seen and heard different filmmaking techniques from that scene if it had been from chuck's perspective howard has a keen ear for audio elements himself as he adds some audio effects to his testimony he goes bang bang the door flew open jimmy came (laughs) in and it just really sets the stage for this dramatic experience and i don't know it made me like howard even more i already like (laughs) him a lot actually but the fact that he is a little theatrical is nice. Another moment that I appreciated was some very efficient filmmaking. When the scene starts in the hearing, audio, what we hear is Mr. Alley setting up his case, his opening arguments. But visually, what we see is Kim and Jimmy getting ready. Getting ready together, by the way. Yeah. I thought that was a lot said in half the time. We get, you know, the montage of them getting set for their day, and we see them doing it together. But at the same time, we get to hear the audio of the opening arguments of the case. Yeah, like you said, it was efficient, economical, and intriguing. Final thoughts. 
So let's get into our favorite moments. I got to take the easy one this week, <laughs> Chuck's rant, but specifically for me, the pan up to the exit sign buzzing at the end and his just look of deflation is the exact moment. I love the whole rant scene, but that was like the cherry on top. What about you, Sean? I had a, a couple moments that I wanted to mention, although both of them were very quick, subtle moments. One of them is right before the rant, when Jimmy's going through the questioning and he's setting Chuck up. Every time he does it, he's sort of is exasperated. He's kind of like sigh and looking down. He's crestfallen, you know, it, like his plan's working and he's so depressed by it. You know, I had a thought when you just mentioned that. I wonder how much of that is Jimmy exaggerating it a little bit to make the chair people feel bad for him, to realize that, see what I have to deal with. I, I feel like there's definitely shades of truth in there, but I feel like he wouldn't necessarily let it show otherwise. I can see that, but I still tend to think it's genuine, at least mostly genuine, just based on other moments when there's no one to show off to, like when he in a break, when he's yeah. talking to Kim, and she's like, you know she's going to hate you after this. He's like, I know. Yeah, and just, yeah. And the other one that I particularly liked was also a quick, subtle moment. It was when Kim's about to meet with Messi Verde, and they've just got the camera on her face, and you can just see her mind spinning, putting it together. She takes a deep breath, puts her game face on. I just like that moment of seeing her put herself together for this tough conversation she's about to have. And that leads to mine, which I think is directly related to a strong theme a meta theme of this episode, which was facial acting, a lot of scenes where there was no words at all spoken by somebody, yet they communicated a lot. And in this moment of mine that I picked was the exposure of the hypocrisy of the nepotism at Hamlin, Hamlin, and the Gill, <laughs> which was such a great gotcha. And it was so good that it even made Howard pause, and it made Mr. Alley even just drop his head because he just had to acknowledge what a strong point it was. Can we take a moment to guess what the new name could have been? You know, Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill Square. <laughs> or like Hamlin, Hamlin, McGill, McGill. Or Hamlin's and McGill's. H-M-H-M. Hamlin, McGill, Hamlin, McGill. Fandomedia.reviews. And that's our show this time. I'm Faniel Sackheim. I'm Fan Cusack. And I'm Vince Gillifan.